All right. Okay, 19 letters. Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. At least in my vision, one of the pivotal forum, one of the pivotal works written in the past 200 years and such a key work for us to look at. The problem with the 19 letters is when often when people go through it, people get hung up by the second letter because it gets through a lot of text. It, it starts quoting a lot of the different aspects and different parts of the Tyra and Tehillim and people sometimes lose focus. What we're gonna try and do is, is try and focus in on the 19 letters, discuss it. When ideas come to us, we're gonna bring it out, but also talk about the broad themes that Rav Hirsch is trying to develop. Who is Rav Shamsha Rafal Hirsch and why is he relevant? Rav Shamsha Rafal Hirsh is the key thinker post the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a, a 1700s, a certain shift that took place in the human imagination where reason and our ability to understand the world became prominent. That made people look at the world very differently and it made people look at religion very differently. And we are, to an extent, an outgrowth of that mindset. Which means when a person says, how do you relate to God in a secular world? That's a genuine question that we will grapple with. Not because Nebuch, we're not from enough. No, this is the water we are swimming in. We are swimming in a modern world. If a person is living in Mer Sha'arim or in another closed off insular environment, they're not going to have certain issues or certain questions, but they will also lack a certain richness, a certain potential. This is where Rav Hirsch becomes key because he doesn't look at the enlightenment as being a bad thing. He doesn't look at the breaking down of the walls of the ghetto as being a bad thing. He doesn't look at our interaction with the outside world as being a bad thing. He looks at it as being a key, important part in our avoidance Hashem, in our relationship with Hashem, in our relation, with our relationship with Tyre. And that unified vision that Rav Hirsch gives us, the 19 letters you could say is his structuring of that worldview. Through this, he develops both his philosophical outlook as well as his understanding of the mitzvahs in the Torah in, in broad strokes. The book that came out afterwards was called Choref, which is him breaking down his understanding of commandments into categories and giving explanations for them. Very few people in history did this. Wrote books on Tami HaMitzvahs. Historically, I think he wrote this when he was, I think it came out when he was 28. Like the, the, the level of genius of this man is absolutely terrifying. And his, 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 uh, his mastery over the sources, once again, is terrifying in, in a positive sense. Originally, when he went to the uh, publisher to produce Kharev, which is this two, but sometimes in two parts, sometimes in one, this book going through every mitzvah in the Torah that's relevant today and giving its laws, as well as a reasoning for it that we would find relevant and impactful today, he tried to publish that and they were like, it's a bit big, write something smaller. He wrote the 19 letters. It was an absolute smash hit in Germany at a point where reform was battling for the dominant position of Judaism and even reform loved it. Abraham Geiger, who is like one of the, the fathers of reform was like blown away by this. Even though Rav Hirsch wrote it under a pseudonym, they knew it was him and it blew everybody away. So it's a book that really has a lot of cultural import, but also from a point of view of us understanding Judaism in a way that we can face the outside world, but not as it's being an opposition to us, as it being the potential for it to be unified with how we understand our relationship with Hashem. That is what Rav Shantrofal Hirsch is doing. And he opens up with a complaint, with a letter, a letter from a friend of his, 
And the reason why I'm going to really try and dive straight into it is because I want to let the, the work speak for itself. When it gets a bit textual in terms of there's a lot of stuff being quoted, perhaps we'll cut certain parts out and try and get the general argument of the le each letter going forward. But the way it's structured is there's one letter which is a complaint, a complaint from a friend of his he met on the train. And the reason why this is so relevant is A, you can probably imagine someone in your life who's like that, where you met. And when you were both in high school together, they were very religious or they weren't, or depending on where you are in your religious journey, and then they lost it and you got it, or you were in STEM with someone and you were both working towards a certain way of looking at the world, then you see each other a couple of years later and the other person's dropped your perspective, not taking your worldview anymore. And there's a certain awkward disconnect between the way you were and where you are now. But Hirsch describes that as a encounter with um, a chap called Benjamin. And he, he, he goes under the name Naftali. And the beauty about this, at least the first letter, is the laying down with the issues this guy has with Judaism. What I'd encourage us to do over the next 45 minutes is while we're talking about issues, try and think of some of your own. And going to this class and to next class, the point of this is, is for us to lay on the ground cultural and philosophical issues we have with Judaism, coming from the point of view that we don't look at the natural or the secular world as a bad place. That, that's key, because it's very easy to open this conversation with, yeah, the secular world's bad. End of conversation. Tyra, tyra, tyra. But if you don't look at the world through that lens, either because you just don't think it's true, you don't look at the world like that. It's very difficult to look at the world with all the good it's done and all the beauty that it offers us and just say it's bad. And when I say it's difficult, I don't mean it's difficult from my secular standpoint. I mean, it's difficult from my appreciation of Judaism. The ideas that Judaism has encouraged me to take on, when I look at the secular world, there are some really important and really beautiful things that I think I should be able to incorporate. But how do I balance that? That is what Rav Shamshrokal Hirsch tries to do for us. Fair. <laughs> it's a phenomenal book, but it's a it's a it, well that would be considered a a sort of an existential journey in your relationship with the self and God and uh, and, and, and once again a phenomenal. Work. This isn't this is going to be more. I think grounded, not that that well. Someone from Rev Soloveitchik's, like a big hardcore why you chat will come and put me down, but it'll be okay. <laughs> All right. I'm going to read it. Actually, no, should we, should we balance it out? Well, maybe let's balance it out. I think often when I read it, it helps me think about things, but by the time I finish with it, I'm busy. So, would you like to begin reading? Do you want to put you on the, on the spot? But we'll, we'll, perhaps we'll go around. And if someone doesn't want to read a paragraph, but if I stop you, it means I've got something that, and if someone else has got a thought that comes to mind, put you, like get involved with the, Discussion. Let's see how it goes. It's going to be experimental because we'll because we're, we're we're this isn't a translation of an ancient Arabic text. This is a translation of something that was written 150 years ago. Or something. You ready? Let's go. If you could read slightly loud, so that the thing that the people on the actually oh, yeah. whoever's on there should should have it in front of them, obviously, <laughs> and it's it's very free online, so it's, it's totally chill. Go, uh, let's go. Why are you not telling? Why are you on the occasion of your trip through the town of my residence? We were privileged to meet again after many years of separation for a short meeting hour. 
We did not imagine, my dear Natalie, what interest the subject of our conversation had, and indeed it still has for me. You found me so changed in my religious views and practices that despite your habitual tolerance, you could not suppress the questions which rose, as it were, spontaneously to your lips. Since when and why? As on an answer, I gave you a whole series. Oh, yeah. As answer, I gave you a whole series of accusations against Judaism, concerning which my eyes had been opened by reading in contact with the world since I had left home in Paris. So, the opening of the complaint, and, and the reason why I say there's something very, uh, I, I, I have friends who went, I, I've had this experience with. When you you see some, when a person's had in been in a uh, a religious system, especially if you if you're uh, FFB, you you meet people who were from in school with you, and then you meet them, and there's a momentarily, and this isn't a judgmental thing, there's a momentarily joint awkwardness, because we both grew up in the same way and we both took radical views. The question: How you deal with that? Now, it depends if you were friends the whole way through it, then obviously you're not going to have this sort of weird, awkward tension. But this weird, awkward tension is a real thing. And whether it was the right thing for Naftali to go, why? When? But he asks him. And he responds. Do you want to come here to me? Yes. Oh, sure. I've got a difference. Sorry. You listened quietly to my speech. And when I had done, replied, do you believe that you really have Honest, earnest investigation and actual understanding of a matter with, inasmuch as it is the holiest and most important consideration of our life, it should at least not be cast aside thoughtlessly and unreflected, unreflectingly. This is like a very um, a, 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 a key point to work on or focus on is that it's the it's the it's the enormity of the importance of the conversation that he's focusing on. It's not that you're wrong. It's that, do you have the foundation to criticize what you're criticizing? You might be right, but are you coming from a position of understanding the, the topic that you're disregarding? And the reason why I want just to stop in, in a contemporary sense, what you often find in, uh, when I was younger, I was really into debates with atheists and theists. It's something I spent really too much time involving myself with. And one of the things that came, at least less so today, but it was very much a cultural phenomenon, that if you were a scientist, you were an expert on religion. You were able to be critical of religion because religion wasn't a real thing. And as a scientist, you understood the world, but religion wasn't quite a real thing that needed to be grappled with. So as a scientist who could, you know, mess with the physical world, you were automatically in a position of authority and were able to cast it aside. And that isn't true. You, the, the idea that these, um, that Judaism, at least in this context, is it's a big deal. It might not be true. He's not saying it's true. He's saying, are you coming to a position, are you coming from a position of understanding that which you criticize? Which is one of the reasons why I'm just pointing out here. It's also a message to us. When we criticize another worldview, let's be really careful. What, I'm, what I mean by that is when people talk about, say, Christianity, right? And whenever I criticize Christianity, I always try and caveat it with recognizing it's more complicated recognizing that if there was a Christian Catholic minister sitting next to me, he probably would be able to give a fairly decent response. That doesn't mean I believe in Christianity. It means I have the humility to recognize that when I criticize something, I should know it first. 
You showed me that the only sources of my knowledge were on the one hand, the clinical practice of parental customs and a few imperfect and undigested fragments of the Bible and Talmud acquired from Polish teachers. And on the other hand, Christian writers, modern reformers, and especially that view of life, which our present age has brought forth and which has as its chief endeavor, the suppression of the inner voice of conscience in favor of the external demands of comfort and ease. So, so that, that, that he's, he's being reflected here which is, by the way, he's about to go on the attack. So he's being reflective. He's recognizing, yeah, I don't know that much. And that humility and also recognition that what's motivating me is to an extent my cultural situation. We have a focus that, that we're not living in, trying to think of a good parallel. We're not living in, I don't know, some commune in India or in Japan where there is a clear focus on the internal development of the individual. We're in the West. And in the West, there is a certain um, uh, uh, striving for the external, which clouds the internal. And he's recognizing that because the flow of, it just draws back to the conversation we had when it comes to Paroi and whatever. Why do we call it a, a descent? When people are doing badly, why do we, why do we use the metaphor of a flow downwards? You're descending into et cetera, et cetera, because, yeah. Isn't it, it's descent versus descent. They're two different words. No, I mean descent. To go yeah. down. Okay, but like to go against someone? No, you dis you, you don't no, you descent uh, so you're right into madness. You you go, Oh, oh I got you. Not like in an argument where you no, 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 no. I mean oh, yeah. why is why is the metaphor of the interesting? I wasn't looking at the metaphor like that, but perhaps I, I meant I look at it just like a bit like water. The natural state is things fall. Unless you're holding it up. And that effort to hold it up, he's recognizing. Yeah, okay, granted. Like often, when uh, when a person has questions with a religious worldview, it, it, a, a big danger, just to point this out, is when people say that people have questions on religion, it's because of psychological reasons. It's not very, that's very disingenuous often, and it's not, doesn't answer any problems or any questions. But there is a truth to the idea that working on the self, this is not talking about Judaism, I'm talking about from a secular standpoint, the way one of my teachers put it. Um, it's like when you can ask a person how long you spend getting dressed in the morning, they'll give you a time. You ask a person how long they spent, I don't know, doing their hair, they'll give you a time. You ask a random person on the street how much time you spent developing your character today, they'll think you're weird. Like, what do you mean developing my character? It's not something that needs developing. No, it is something that needs developing, but it requires effort. It requires holding up that. Exactly. And he's recognizing that being part of life, and we're all part of this. We're all part of that sort of that callousness that takes over things when we just don't think and when we're just getting on with life. Why am I getting on? Because you get on with things. But it takes work to, uh, you're in SEM now, right? You're not post high school. Post high school, the natural move is to go to SEM in certain circles. Post university, are you all post university? No, uh, but, but, but it is not the natural state to come to seminary now. Not trying to make everybody feel amazing, but it is a big deal. That's why. That's why. By the way, on a, on a, on a, if other people listening, I apologize. Which is why it's a genuine privilege to teach here, because people who are here are here by choice, not because of the not, not criticizing other people. Obviously, in terms of people going to seminary, but <laughs> but there is a genuine there's a genuine point about when a person comes to learn when they're not expected to, which means you have to. There's a holding up you have to do. He's recognizing my criticisms came from a bit of ignorance which is fair, but also because I, I just had to get on with things. Would you like to continue? Okay. Oh, no, do you, want, do you want to read? Do you want to read? I just want to give everybody a chance. 
Right, perfect, perfect. Okay. I have a question about the insufficiency of my knowledge. Back, uh, you for instruction. Then the coachman called, and in bidding me goodbye, you had only time to call in writing. You have, therefore, made me distrustful, my dear Nafari, of the opinion I have hero held, but you have not refuted them, nor given me better ones in their stead. I therefore take advantage of your kind permission and repeat to you inviting a number of my charges, not for the purpose of defending my present mode of life, but in a sincere desire of information and guidance. Every religion, I believe, should bring man nearer to his ultimate end. This end, what else can it be than the attainment of happiness and protection? Okay. Yes. Or is that just a part of the... Uh, I think it's a different part of it. So he's opening up. He wants to understand. He wants to know. And he's writing to um, his friends. Do you want to you, you want to read a bit? I'm just going through the thing just so I'm not like picking on the... Yes. So we're going to get to that in a second because that's a good point. The, the point that he's... Um, the point he's focusing on, the way he's opening up his entire argument is based off a certain premise, which you pointed out quite rightly. What is that premise that he's opening up with? The end is happiness and perfection. Now, the problem with both those phrases are the ends being happiness, that's a big deal. Nobody introduced me to Judaism and say, adopt this, you'll be happy. Also, perfection is a very relative to perfection in reference to what? You're trying to, the, the, the desire or the striving to obtain perfection is a journey with perfection being an end. But perfection is a relative term. You can be the perfect plumber. You could be the perfect electrician. You could be the perfect painter or painter of a specific style. Perfection seems to be quite relative. So if you tell me, I think religion should do X, the two things that you've already focused on are very vague. You want, you want happiness. Okay, you're telling me more about you than about the religion at this point. And perfection, which, what exactly do you mean by that? You know? But if we take these principles as a criterion for Judaism, what utterly depressing results do we not obtain? What happiness does Judaism conduct its professors? From time immemorial, misery and slavery have been their lot, misunderstood or despised by the other nations. And while the rest of mankind mounted to the summit of culture, prosperity, and fortune, its appearance remained always poor in everything, which makes human beings great and noble, and which beautifies and dignifies existence. So he's described the role of the individual. He's described the role of the nation. It, individuals were miserable. Misery and slavery have been our lot. And think about it. He's not far off. And also the role of a nation, a culture. What, what, have, what has Judaism done recently? You're a bunch of ghettoized people who lived in ghettos. You suffered for your religion. And what have you given humanity? Like, I, I'm supposed to be attracted to this? To, 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 uh, do you want to carry on? So, Judaism has a certain history of why minority groups don't want to. What, what, Judaism is supposed to achieve, religion is supposed to do something. I'm going to propose what I think Judaism is supposed to do. It's supposed to do something. If you, if you go to, I don't know, even taking a very basic level, you go to a random Kira seminar, right? They, they, they're probably trying to convince you on some level that Judaism is a good idea, right? And they probably will touch upon these ideas of happiness and perfection at some point or another. And he's saying, but let's actually think about it. 
for the past 2000 years, it's been an absolute miserable existence. In which case, okay, as individuals, it doesn't seem to be so hunky-dory. And also as a nation, what exactly have you done recently? He's painting Judaism in a very real way, if you look at it through his lens. Yeah, it, it, we, we, we could probably think of answers, but let's like, immerse ourselves in the questions. Yeah. A lot of self-interest diets are all enjoyments. It's an hindrance to all the pleasures of life. For 2,000 years, we are as the favorite of food, as the ball of toss and hand of hand. Even in the present time, driven from all the paths of happiness. And as the perfecting of human acquirement, what culture, what conquests, in the domain of science, art, or invention, in a word, what great achievements, have you brought compared with Egyptians, Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans, Italians, French, English, Romans? Yeah. Do we think that's a do we think that's a fair yeah, push? I just want food and food. <laughs> everyone kills us. Right. That, that, uh, it's a good point. It's a good point. It's a defense, but is he wrong? So like at this point in history, like Jews were not like contributing that much. So when was this? This is uh 1850s. Mid 1800s. Sorry? But remember, you, it's a fair point. You can say, oh, well, we didn't have the opportunity. Is that for sure? But in the past 2,000 years, you've been a bunch of miserable individuals. And as a nation, and just to, I'm, I'm, do you want to jump to the next, next paragraph? And um, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna, he's gonna dig in deeper. Seems a nation, and every one of us is by his birth doomed to form an additional link in this now to repeat them. Look at all characteristics of nationality. We are nevertheless nation. I'm a Jew, I was born a Jew. No, there's no nationhood. There's no beautiful Roman Empire. No, you're a Jew, and but I don't want to be a Jew. Ah, and every one of us, by the dint of his birth, is doomed to form an additional link. In this never-ending chain of misery. Well, and, and, and sorry, and you're asking me, I should defend Judaism. I have an issue. You said, why? What happened? What do you mean, what happened? I should hold, I should link my arms with my ancestors and continue this miserable existence. So is, this is all like a fictional person he made up that has these fictional problems, and he's just using yeah. it as his like um, train to like. Wow. Remember, that much about this is he doesn't. Uh, the first place put his back. That's a horrible thing to say. Yeah, and but it's not like it's his letter because no, he was having that. a crisis. It's like he's like this is a problem. He, he is a, that I can use as a vehicle to address. Beautifully put. And the beauty about that is he's able to reflect. What I always find what I find difficult is that you can have certain religious educators who find it so difficult to understand a secular perspective. I think that's very not there's there's obviously place for that and it's important, but they can't understand how someone couldn't just take this worldview. That's a problem. If you can't take your mind and put it into someone else's perspective, then there's a certain lack of connection you can have with people who aren't you or look at the world exactly the same way you do. And well, you could when you meet a rabbi, you get someone who's in the like when you meet a rabbi, you cannot fathom any of the things that I'm saying. Then it's like I don't care. Like they're not going to reach me. They're not able to make art me because they're just coming at it from their perspective. The only one I have I can acknowledge that my opinion and my feelings and then receive that when it's like. So that's what I think he. That's what I always found so so meaningful in the way he describes the deal. Say Judaism, uh, it's silly, and then move on. No, no, no. 
there's a not only a, he's not only going to break it up or attempt to dismantle it from a rational standpoint or from an experiential standpoint, but he's also like from a from like I don't know what the word phrase is, an existential standpoint. What it means to exist as a Jew is like not even your choice. And 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 what benefit does it give us? Now we're going to develop responses to this, and he's going to paint a picture of attempting to respond to this, to paint a picture of Judaism that is both on the on one level holistic in terms of it gives us a way of looking at the world, but also how the individual components fit together to make Judaism meaningful. He's going to do that because he knew he was, he, yeah. he, he, he knew that he wrote this, meaning remember, he wrote this with the knowledge of what he's going to write later. Exactly. So he, <laughs> the law, okay. To, it, And th that's why there's another idea. There's another idea. It's just like, I feel bad that we won't necessarily finish the whole letter in this. And we'll have to walk away miserable. No, 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 no. I've got another point to add to what you just said. There's an idea. I've forgotten the name of the thinker who put it. That there's nothing less interesting than an answer to a question no one had. Why is that important? And, and not just it, 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 in the Kira of the E world, people get told how to answer questions without feeling the pain of the question. What I mean by that is, I can tell you an answer to a bunch of questions. It, unless you feel the pain of the question, you'll never own the answer. I can answer X number of questions, but if, if, take evolution, for example, or take, um, I don't know, some issue some religious person has a problem with. It, people wanna hear answers to questions that they feel are theologically challenging. But if they don't experience the question and they don't feel the pain of the question, the answer is slightly meaningless. It's like clocking it rather than understanding it. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Um, use evolution as a question, right? Certain people think religion and evolution have a problem together, right? And people try and give answers to that. But often when people give answers, they, you, you, you feel a, there's perhaps a lack of appreciation of what the question is. And because often, by the way, appreciating the question opens you up to multiple answers. But if you think on principle evolution is a problem and you get slapped on it with an answer until you either felt the pain of why you genuinely think evolution is an issue. And then if you were able to sit in that place where you thought evolution was such an issue, A, you can appreciate the topic. You could appreciate that which is causing you so much grief. If you did that, perhaps you would realize that it shouldn't perhaps cause you so much grief. But if you still walked away thinking it did, your answer would take the problem into account. And often a slapstick answer, or a slap on sticker answer to a question that you didn't really feel the pain of the question, you, you can feel it in the superficiality of the answer. Hence to sit with the question and allow the question to hurt. Exactly. Please. The last cheaply at all for all this by enjoying, by enjoying isolation in life and thereby arousing suspicion and possibility by breaking the spirit through the thank you invocation of permissiveness, thereby inviting consent by discouraging the pursuit of formative art by drama like far away of free circulation and by removing through the separation in life every incentive to exertion in science and art Beautifully put. Think about that. The law is chiefly at fault to this. Let's be serious here. It kind of is. 
it, it, enjo- it, it encourages an isolation in life, in which case you don't hang out with people, you hang out with other you, you can you can think of kashras. Yeah. I can't go to dinner with my I can't go to dinner with my coworkers, and I'm bringing it into my life, and thereby arousing. So why do you why do you always get a coke when we go out for dinner? Uh, because coke is kosher, and your shrimp isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, thank you for inviting suspicion on me, and I'm just trying to be part of the world. But the law pushes me aside first. Well, let's recognize where this. It, it, it keeps us isolated. And by the way, playing off the previous point, in this miserable state of being a nation, it saps on us. That it, and what what is the this state of misery based off? Basically, the law. Not only does it invite suspicion, not only does it um, uh, invite suspicion and um, in uh, isolate me, it breaks the spirit. Well, oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Again, humble submissiveness. You know that Musa type person who just, you know, submissively walks around with his little book, the ideal religious person. The idea of the ideal religious person being that uh, focusing on his books, very submissive, very humble. And by the way, this is more of a person, like someone's going to cut this and like, so, like I'm going to get in trouble. But, 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 that, that, but that approach, we can think about that. When you think, and I mean this with the greatest respect for all big Godoy Israel, but righteous, righteous people are often the ideal I don't want to say the ideal Jew, because that's the wrong way of phrasing it, but people Jews look up to are often old, long-bearded, and very isolated. Isolated. And he's saying, what, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you can envision this idea of humble submissiveness being a goal. Now, you guys may say, sorry, Sammy, this no one says you should be humble and submissive. That humble submissive is like a, it's a personality trait that some people happen to have. Yes, humility is important, but self-confidence along with your humility. Uh-huh, we will think about that and we will develop that. But from his point of view, I look at Jews focusing on someone. Which Jews do Jews have on their Shabbos wall? If you have pictures of rabbis. The rabbis. Uh, uh, rabbis. The idea of white beard and learning books. This humble submissiveness, which he, he is describing. And then he sort of breaks And this, um, this, this, no. If I don't think he would want to be. Um, and thereby inviting contempt by discouraging the pursuit of the formal arts by dogmas, which bar the way of free, by a free speculation. Your ability to think freely. Judaism is like enmeshed in these dogmas. You must believe this, you must believe that, you must believe the other. I want to think, I want to be free, I want to fly. No. Believe. Now, this isn't me saying this. This is Benjamin saying this. Or more precisely, this is Rav Hirsch saying this. True. True and he's like, how do you ever expect there to be anything of, of beauty, of the form of art to blossom forth from such a dogmatic, rigid structure? Uh, dogmatic. Yeah. It, it, certain yeah. things you have to believe. Believe X. Why? You're not allowed to ask. There are, is obviously a certain caricature he's doing here, but it's not that it's character, you can't envision someone speaking like this. A well thought through, sophisticated critic of Judaism would speak just like this. Would you like to continue? Thank you. I love, by the way, that's <laughs> As for our own law, I, uh, I assume he's referring to the Talmud here. Have you ever learned Talmud? You learned Gemara, right? A good description of that is leads astray into subtleties and minutiae of petty distinctions. 
Do you have kind a, I just, I, I, was just I, was, I was doing the duff today to give you a, a perspective. Different types of ways of expressing Nazirus. A Yodois, or, uh, if I hint to the fact that I might want to be a Nazir, am I a Nazir? That, they're talking about that for now. I'm not going to. So he's not, this isn't like, yeah. That's a quotable moment. <laughs> um, so, so what, what, what is he saying here? I look at the I look at the I look at the ideas within the Talmud. I look at the ideas in the Old Testament and I read them. I've read them, I looked at them, and for heaven's sake, it's 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 old, it's archaic, and it's strange. I don't stone people anymore. Please thank you. By, well, thank you for not people anymore. But by the way, this is there yes. was a there was a very famous book that came out in the 2010, I don't know, called The God Delusion, which was basically Richard Dawkins reading to people the Bible. He wasn't doing much more than that. It was basically saying, buy a Bible, which you think is so awesome. Let me tell you what it actually says in there. And it freaked people out because people hadn't actually learned the Bible. He's basically saying, first of the Old Testament, please. And second of all, open up a Talmud. You ask a random person to open up a Talmud, open it up, start reading. Like, but where I point to, and it will sound really bizarre, really nitpicky. And and he, what's his point to asking um, Natali? He's saying, listen, I know you read this stuff. And you find it appealing, but you also appreciate Virgil, Tasso, and Shakespeare, three poets. Um, I'm trying to think, well, you all know Shakespeare, obviously. Tasso, I haven't got a clue who he is. Virgil is a Roman author. You've heard of the Odyssey? That's not him, that's Homer. But he wrote, quite, I think it was called the Aeneid. No, the Iliad, the, the Iliad was Homer. Homer wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad. The Aeneid, the Aeneid, the Aeneid was written by Virgil. It's basically, uh, it's basically the end of the story of Troy. They ran away from Troy and they started Rome, meaning he gives it a theological epic poem. Anyway, that's Virgil, Shakespeare, and then he moves, that's the, in the area of literature, or the, um, the, the um, Leibniz and Kant. Kant is going to be actually become quite relevant because he was the father in some way of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, and Leibniz came uh, before Kant, but also he was a very, very influential philosopher even though in his own life, nobody really cared about him, I think, but he just wrote an insane amount and what's obviously a genius. Um, I think he I think he came up with calculus at the same time as Newton. Not sure why I think that, but, but anyway, very smart fellow. And if you, and in, in a similar silly way, and I'm not comparing myself to this fellow here, but I, as I said, I was fairly, I, I, I like listening to lots of different people who aren't Jewish. When I was giving a talk somewhere, I quoted a person in my discussion with my students. And who was it? Ah, Yovel Noah Harari. Have you heard of this fellow? Yeah, he, wrote he, wrote, he wrote Sapiens, he wrote Homo Deus, and yeah. he wrote 12 rules. I know. Yovel Noah Harari. Yes, he's, he's, he's an Israeli historian and an absolutely fascinating thinker. But like, you want to hear a perspective on the modern times? He's someone really to listen to. 
he's very smart, has a good feel of history, happens to be a big atheist. What happens is people read his works, are super impressed by him, and feel a need to adopt his philosophy. So when I quoted him, someone got a little bit upset with me and said, that works rubbish. And I'm like, I'm sorry to be a weirdo, but I disagree. I said, but it's, and started criticizing one of his works. I say, I don't adopt wholesale everything he says. I didn't adopt his philosophy, but I can appreciate the value he's giving to the conversation on history, on biology, on philosophy. There is a value he's giving, even though on a very fundamental way, I can disagree with him. And that allowed that person I was speaking to he was able to listen to me because he was like, well, another person in the group, because he was like, well, I also think this guy's interesting and smart. So if the religious worldview is saying, no, the people you think are smart are stupid. Let me show you my smart people. The appreciation to, to, to balance the world, because the, 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 the character Rav Hirsch is describing here is someone who reads through Kant, who is, I can't read through Kant. It's super difficult. I read through the people of the people of the people of the people who learn Kant, I mean, not really, but I'm saying that the, the idea that opening up the critique of pure reason is, is, is a life script, but, but at least of someone like me. He's describing himself as someone who's able to work in that world, and also Leibniz, but not only he's a philosopher, he's doing the Halevi shift here as well. What was Rabbi Yehuda Halevi? What did we say that was so valuable about Rabbi Yehuda Halevi? One of the reasons he was so valuable is that he was a philosopher and a poet. Right. Being able to appreciate that side of the human character and the side, the philosophical side, the heart and the mind. And Rathash is describing himself as being, yeah, I get both sides. I can appreciate a play by Shakespeare. I can read Virgil and find the profundity. Do I believe Troy had got? No. Do I believe that Rome was started from people who left Troy? No. But can I appreciate the beauty and the value Virgil gives us and Shakespeare gives us and appreciate there's a value and I'm an orthodox practicing Jew who believes in my religion fully. How does that work? The way, the way Rav Hirsch often describes it is the thinking man and woman of Judaism, of the Jewish people. So like someone who's already like orthodox or someone who's like, like you said, kind of like this is the Jewish Enlightenment era, reform Judaism in Germany, Islam, and Rise, like he's speaking to like, like kind of like middle of the road, like yes. one foot in, yes. one foot yes. out. Yes, it's very, very well put. He always was very clear and similar thing that lots, lots of Jewish philosophers wrote when they put their works together. I'm not talking to an object, objective atheist. That's not as someone who has a who, who is a committed atheist isn't going and he wrote that in the beginning of one of his books it's not my point right now if you want to have that conversation that's a different conversation here's a person who obviously is like somewhere in somewhere out or people who are in but don't know why they're in or people who are in know why they're in but want to get a fuller appreciation of judaism it's not talking to someone who's completely out because they wouldn't be interested like you mentioned Kizari. so that rabbi there was writing a defense of Judaism. Yes. He chose his vehicle of like the answers to come from this incredible rabbi giving all these answers. Whereas like this book, Rehosh is choosing a normal guy yeah. who like reads everything but is also Jewish. Yes. And he's like, he's the one who's going to be defending Judaism Correct. for defending them. Correct. Yeah. Wow. It's kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, would you, you know, let's continue. Um, and what effect has it, the law of compartment like the broad principles of universal morality are narrowed into ancient scrupulosity about insignificant trifles. Nothing is taught except to fear God, everything, even the pettiest details of life, is referred directly to God. Life itself becomes a continuous monastic service, nothing but prayers and ceremonies. 
He's the most crazy. He is the most crazy Jew who looks more sophisticated than those in the world, who he permits it to support him for wastes of life in fasting and praying and the perusal of senseless writings. Look to itself at the book that we put into our hands as the path of life, and it contains the whole duty of the Jew. And what else does it teach except praying and fasting and keeping the holidays? Where is there one word about of the active busy life around us? And this too, just in our time. Why? It, isn't, it is quite impossible to keep these laws intended for an entirely different time. What limitation in traveling, what embarrassment in association with Gentiles, what difficulties in every business? So, thank you. What I want to do is we're going to just focus on this paragraph here. And the reason I want to end the reading here, you can also obviously read it, read it at home. But then the next class, I want to transition into the letter, the next letter, his response. And I want to have that, that liminal stage between the two. But what is he doing here? Rav Hirsch is opening himself up to defend Jewish The previous part was discussing the philosophical ideas of Judaism. How do you integrate? How do you stand in the world? That, those sort of questions. Now he's saying like the way of life, or what did he call the way of life? The path of life, what's he talking about? The Shulchan Aruch. Open up the Shulchan Aruch and start reading. Every aspect of your life and the, the most praiseworthy Jew is like the most, all that way of looking at Torah law, as being this really awkward, embarrassing hodgepodge of religious ritual. Like, really, I, I am, I'm an enlightened person and you want me to do all these rituals. I'm sorry. It's just strange, it's convoluted, and it's embarrassing, quite frankly. That's Rav Hirsch's opening to say, okay, we're gonna talk about why Judaism, what is the why of Judaism? Why should someone pursue Judaism? You asked me that question. Why should I follow this? Rav Hirsch is going to describe why we should follow this. He's going to describe why it is a noble pursuit. And then lastly, which he's going to develop here, is how do the commandments facilitate that noble pursuit? Because that's going to be a key principle. How does it facilitate that noble pursuit? Because we can talk about the laws in the Torah. It's going to be other really cool ideas. But if you can't filter it to the, the goal of Judaism itself, there's a disconnect. The laws have to facilitate the purpose. You won't always have a good answer, but we want to understand not that there's these bland rituals. We want to see how these rituals are meaningful in relationship to the ultimate goal. And uh, just to, to, to uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll look through the, 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 the OB, you, you can look through it as well. But the, the, if, and also over the, between now and then, if there are other questions that come, for example, a, a question that arose, which one of my friends, um, a, a professor in, uh, in, I think he's at Haifa University, a man called Sam Liebens, when he, when he, he, he wrote a, uh, a piece on this, it's like a, an interesting reaction a person has, what do you mean Jews? Jews today, silly. Try and translate it today. Jews are responsible for so many uh, Nobel Prizes. Oh, people love throwing that about the place. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with Judaism. They happen to be Jewish. Judaism didn't lead them to do that. Literature, um, sciences, it's not because they were religious Jews studying the Talmud. It was because they happened to be Jews who happened to pursue these ideas and they were very successful. No, no, I'm not saying it's a coincidence. I'm saying if you're trying to defend Judaism by saying Nobel Prizes, there is a beauty to that, granted. But in defense of the truth of Judaism, yeah, not so much. Why? Because there's a very, I mean, it's, there's not a relationship between the Jewish religion and all these achievements. If I'm anything- I'm just saying it's the emphasis on education. From a historical standpoint, 
for sure. It's in this week's parish, it's quite, everything is about teach your children, teach your children, teach your children. Absolutely. But that's more of a sociological genetic explanation. Yeah. The, the, the weird genetic explanation would be, and this is an NF. So, but from a very genetic standpoint, you could say, well, what did Jews do of the past? Not that it actually happened like this, but if you were going to be cynical, oh, it might be true. What did Jews do? Uh, yeah. What the, the, they either made money or they studied a lot. And who married who? The rich people married the smart people. Again and again and again and again. So, if you wanted to be cynical, you could just throw that on it. But that's nothing to do with Judaism. Jude, when I say Judaism, I mean the religion. Yeah, so you're kind of saying that in a really weird way, but the second, the second, it's successful secular Jews of today owe most of their success to the halakhic way of doing No, yeah. no. Oh, do you mean religiously or you mean like genetically? Ah, the yacht, maybe, maybe. As I said, that was like, if a person wants to say, listen, Jews are doing really well, and thereby you can see Judaism is true. I'm saying, no, you can give naturalistic explanations for that. Why is that going to be relevant here? Because uh, because it's a critique you can envision someone today bringing. Like, oh, Judaism, no, 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 Judaism has done a lot for the world. Yeah, but... Exactly. Now, I would say, we are going to talk about where I actually think Judaism has shifted the way the world looks at things. You might argue that science as a, a way of looking at the world is biblical in nature, looking for a unified vision of the world. Sorry, you don't get that in ancient pagan Greece. 